0: Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be today and for a while, and so we'll turn our Bibles there. I have a lot of problems. One of my problems is I can't get enough of the news. I just love the news. My wife would tell you it's a really big problem. I think it's just a little problem, but uh, I, I like to uh, peruse the papers. I like to read the headlines. I like to catch the uh, headlines on TV. I want to know what's happening in and around the world. I, in fact, I, I'll sometimes watch C-SPAN. Now, I know you say you've got to be out of your mind. I'll watch it when they're showing the, the floor of the Senate or the, uh, you know, the representatives, and they won't even be in there, but they're tallying the votes. I'll be watching that. I want to see how the voting's going. And, and I enjoy watching the news, but never do I come away from a time where I've immersed myself in the news encouraged or inspired. Normally, I come away from the news thinking, I can't believe this. You know, they did that again, or they've got a problem over here. We, we typically don't put words like good and news together it just doesn't seem to work that way but as we begin today a study in the gospel of mark i want you to know that that first word there the word gospel is a word that is defined as good news and anytime you study about the person or the work of Jesus Christ, anytime you study a narrative chronicling the the works that Jesus God the Son did it 's good news it 's great news it 's the best news and so i 'm very much looking forward to getting into a study that I think can inspire and encourage uh, uh, each of us today and in the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, we find through word a picture of Jesus Christ and, and each of the Gospels records the life and work of Jesus. And God the Spirit used the different perspectives or, or the different point of view that the human authors would have. Each of the Gospels shares that singular purpose, but they come at it from a different perspective. Now, I told you of necessity I'm going to have to teach a little bit today, all right? How many of you think from time to time a pastor has to teach? Amen? How many of you think implied in that biblical admonition for me to teach would be that someone should probably have to listen? Okay, good. All right. Some of you didn't vote. That's not fair. But all right. So I'm going to teach today. Now, we think of the first four books of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew, we know, was a gospel directed towards the Jewish audience. It was a gospel that presented Jesus as the king. And for that reason, the Bible takes a lot of time in, early in the book of Matthew to give the genealogy of Christ. It helps us to understand where he came from and why no one else on planet Earth could possibly have fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies regarding his lineage and his birth, Jesus was the one. So the Gospel of Matthew shares shares with us that. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, great Gospel. Uh, obviously written by a man by the name of Luke. Luke was a medical doctor, and for that reason, he spent a lot of time uh, talking about the miracles. He noticed things in the miracles of Christ that maybe no one else would have recognized other than a doctor. He was very interested in all of that, and Luke is is a great gospel, and, and his emphasis is that direction. He's writing primarily to a Greek audience, and he presents Jesus as the perfect man. Greeks would have been interested in that. John's gospel was God's gospel to the entire world. And we know that in John's gospel, uh, the, the emphasis is on the deity of Jesus Christ. Now listen, Jesus Christ is God the Son. And for our understanding, John spends a lot of time emphasizing that truth. In fact, the gospel of John begins sharing that Jesus is the God of creation. I mean, when we read Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and then we read John 1-1, we're talking about the same God there. And John wants us to understand Jesus Christ is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and He was there at work at the occasion of creation. Now, Mark's gospel is unique in that it presents Jesus as a king who is a servant. Now, to us, that seems like a paradox. It just doesn't seem to work. It doesn't seem to fit. A king and a servant going together. Many have identified the key verse in Mark's gospel as Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Mark directed his gospel to to Rome, to those living in that place, and they would have been intrigued by the thought of, of a sovereign being a servant. The ruler of Rome about this time was a man by the name of Nero. He was a tyrant. He was literally out of his mind. We'll get to that more in a moment. But they just wouldn't have been able to fathom the thought of someone with absolute authority actually being kind and loving and benevolent and gracious, a servant, So Mark writes these words under the influence and direction of the Holy Spirit of God. You see, the fact that Mark wrote with the Romans in mind helps us to understand really his style and his his approach. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It's a quick-moving book. Most of the chapters are tied together by coordinating conjunctions. Boy, my mom would be proud. She was an English teacher, you know, and, and it's just all tied together. 41 times Mark uses a word that means immediately or, or uh, uh, quickly. In other words, he's just riding fast. You say, well, why? Well, he was directing it to those in Rome. Yeah, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, if we understand the timing of this all, it, it would appear that Nero, that Roman ruler who was out of his mind, we know through a study of world history, he, he decided one day to burn a building down in Rome and ended up building the whole city down. Well, he needed a scapegoat. He had to blame somebody, so he blamed this new group of people he didn't really understand. But, but he said, I'll tell you who did it. The Christians did it. And so... Approximately the time this is coming out, we know the believers near Rome were living just outside of the city in an underground area called the Catacombs. It was catacombs. It was actually an area for, for burial. And you get the idea as Mark is writing this gospel, he knows he's writing to people that aren't necessarily looking forward to the longest piece of literature they've ever received. In fact, Mark spends less time than the other gospels dealing with the words of Jesus Christ. He spends more time dealing with the works of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's writing to people who are thinking, hey, my my world is a mess, I've got big problems, I really need to know what Jesus Christ would do in a situation similar to mine. And so Mark is writing through the inspiration of God the the gospel message to them. Mark, the author of this book, uh, is a figure that if you've come at all on our Sunday night studies of the Apostle Paul, he, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. He was a man who was used of the Lord, not a perfect man, of course. It, it is believed that Peter, the apostle Peter, led Mark to Jesus Christ when referring to Mark Peter in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13 said, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Mark was his son in the faith. Mark had a believing mother. He was reared in a Christian home in that sense. In fact, the Bible tells us that Mark's home was opened up as a meeting place for Christians. And Mark was different than Matthew and John in that he was not an apostle, possibly met Jesus Christ. Of course, he met him through faith, undeniably spent time with the apostles. But he was mentored by Barnabas and primarily by Peter. And for that reason, a lot of people call the gospel of Mark the gospel of Peter, because much of what it's written in the Gospel of Mark. Mark would have heard from Peter, an eyewitness to the life and times of Jesus Christ. He lived an amazing life, and God used him in a great way. And he didn't invest much time at all in the lineage or childhood of Jesus Christ. He just jumps right into his story of the servant king. And that's what we're going to do today. We have a little background, don't we? And so if, if you would be so kind as to join me in standing, if you're able, we'll read our text together. And... Uh, continue to get this party started, as they say, all right? I'm excited about this study in the Gospel of Mark. I hope you are as well, and uh, it's good news. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I just like the way Mark just says right up front, hey, let me tell you who we're going to talk about. Well, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, by the way. he's, He's the Son of God, all right? And that's the premise of the Gospel message. Verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Excuse me, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. John was was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. I want you to go back, please, if you would, to the midst of verse 2. As Mark gets the gospel narrative started, he he begins by telling us about a man the Bible calls in the middle of verse 2, My messenger. My messenger. Now, we're going to need to take some time. We're going to need to invest some time to be diligent in our study. Uh, to make sure we, we get in the book so that the book can get in us. And that we're going to have to be introduced to some characters early on in this study, and that'll help us in the long road. So there's much for us today, but much of what's said today will come back to help us later on down the road. So we'll have a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll begin this time together. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you, you are a God of love, a God who cares. And Lord, we come to you now beginning this series today, and this this is, I believe, a deeply spiritual moment anytime we open your word. But in a special way, Lord, I feel this uh, intense pressure, uh, responsibility would be be a better word maybe to to really do my best to yield to you, to be diligent and study. And and yet, Lord, I I know I'm not, but I know if I were a great teacher, apart from those willing to receive in your spirit's work at that end of things, we We wouldn't see much progress. And so, Lord, may all of us here today yield to that work that you want to do in this moment. It's about your will being accomplished. And so we come to you with, with these prayers this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In ancient times, it was common for a king to send a forerunner out to prepare for his arrival. The forerunner would go out, and he'd make sure the roads were open. He'd make sure there were no problems along the way. He would tell the villages and the towns and the cities, hey, get ready, the king is coming, and you're going to want to make sure that you're ready when he comes through. They sometimes would make repairs to the roads, again, removing obstacles maybe that had fallen in the road to serve as an obstruction. And as the people knew the king was coming, they, of course, would want to be on hand and maybe catch a glimpse and and to have an opportunity to say, "Uh, I saw the king when he passed by Well, we know that as Mark begins his gospel, he opens by sharing with us who the king is. The king is Jesus Christ, God the Son. And names we know carry great meaning. Uh, For example, I have a name. My name is Steve. That's the name most people refer to me. When I hear Steve, I turn around and look, and and, uh, that's my personal name. It's identified with me. But I have another name, my last name, my family name is Chapel. That identifies me with my family. So, Steve, yeah, that's me. Chapel. well, that's me too. But I even have a middle name to distinguish me from my uncle and cousin who also have the same name of Steve Chapel. My middle name would even give you a little better idea as to who you were talking about. And Mark, as he begins his gospel, he says, in essence, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is a great word. It's the greatest name that's ever been uttered. Jesus is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Joshua that means salvation or Savior. He says Jesus Christ. The word Christ comes from the word Christos. It means the anointed one or the Messiah. And as Mark uses the word Christos or Christ to refer to Jesus, he's saying that Jesus is the one talked about in the Old Testament, the one prophesied of by the prophets of old, the one that said that God would come and and make a way. So Mark says, I want you to know we're talking about Jesus, our Savior, Christ, the Messiah. And then he says, the Son of God. If you put that title together, we can learn through these opening words in the Gospel of Mark who Jesus is, where he came from, and why he came. You see, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But being the King of all there is, he needed a forerunner to serve as his messenger to prepare the world for his arrival the Bible introduces this forerunner, and he'll be the source of our study today, the object of our study today. He's a man by the name of John the Baptist. He's a man of whom God could say, hey, you see John the Baptist over there? He's my messenger. What a great testimony. What a great thing for the Lord to be able to say of anybody that they will serve him. And as we begin our study today, and as you have your outlines nearby, we'll begin by seeing the prophecy of John now, Mark tells us that John the Baptist's office was prophesied hundreds of years before. He references in, in our text this morning, as we took the time to read through, he, he referenced some Old Testament prophecies in, in verses 2 and 3. In the prophet's writings, we read, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So the prophets of old said, one's going to come, he's going to be the last of the prophets, and he's going to say things like, prepare the way. That's what John did. The last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, says in chapter 3 and verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. John the Baptist was raised in a a Christian home, as we would say, a family of faith. His father, Zacharias, was a priest. His mother, Elizabeth, was a godly woman, and she was the cousin to Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. That made John the Baptist and Jesus cousins as well. So John comes from a believing home, his father's a priest, his mother's a godly lady, and the Bible lets us know that it's from this home that that God begins to bless them with a baby. John the Baptist was a miracle. Now I want to say today that all of life comes from God, and all of life is miraculous. In fact, if you were to study the life of John the Baptist, the Bible would tell us that the Spirit of God was upon him even when he was in his mother's womb. And when, when Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, came within close proximity to Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that John the Baptist left within the womb of his mother. I just want to say today that the Bible makes it pretty evident that even though a baby may be within the womb of his mom, that baby still alive, still, values, still has value, still matters, is still a miracle from God. But John the Baptist's life was a miracle in a special way. His mother Elizabeth had lived a while. I wouldn't call her old. I wouldn't want her to get mad at me, but the Bible says she was well stricken in age. That almost sounds worse than old, doesn't it? You know, I think I'd rather be old than well stricken in age. And the Bible tells us she couldn't have children. Well, that was a disappointment. The Bible tells us in Luke 1 and verse 7, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they were both now well stricken in years. That's Luke 1 and verse 7, but in Luke 1 and verse 57, the Bible says this. Now, Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. Oh, listen, all life is miraculous in that it comes from God, but in a special way we see God's hand on John's life even before he was born. We see the prophecy of John, but as we move on today, we see the preaching of John. John the Baptist served God in a day when the Jewish people of the region had essentially turned their hearts and minds far from God. You see, for them... Thinks it degenerated to the point where they had the laws of God, and then they had other people that kind of added their own twist to many of the laws. And for many people, they, they just decided, in our vernacular, the way we would say it, you know, going to church just isn't for me, it doesn't help me, uh, it doesn't encourage me, nothing good comes from it. And that's, that's how it would be articulated in our day. In this day, many of the Jewish people who would worship at, at temple and synagogue, they would say, you know, uh, this just isn't for me. There was a cooling in the hearts of, of the people of God, the Jewish people, from following Him. And then the Gentile world, they just saw matters of faith as superstition, as foolishness, as, as a waste of time. By and large, exceptions, of course, but that was the, the general thought, the, the general approach. And so people really needed to hear that the king was coming. And so that's what John the Baptist preached. He didn't necessarily preach what everybody wanted to hear. He preached what it was that God the Father wanted him to say. I remember when we started the work here, uh, when we came to this area, we were very interested in things like location. Now, those first meetings, a lot of them took place in our living room. That's a pretty comfortable setting. But we, we really were interested in location. I wanted to be in the middle of things. I, I wanted to be in a place where people could get to us. In fact, when we began to think and dream about names for our church, we, we were really interested in having a name that was inclusive. I didn't want, we started in Carlsbad, I didn't want a, a name that would say, this is a church for Carlsbad, or this is a church for Oceanside. I kind of like Coastline Baptist Church. I thought, you know, that's, that's broad enough that people could come from a variety of places. It's a church for a region. We were very, very interested in location. We wanted to be accessible. We wanted to communicate to people. We want everything everybody to come, and John the Baptist had completely the opposite approach. He pretty much said, okay, here's Jerusalem. Here's where the vast majority of the people live, and he went, oh, maybe 20, 30 miles or so out to the Jordan River, not too far from Jericho, and it was out there in the middle of nowhere, the place the Bible calls the wilderness, that he decided to start a ministry of preaching and teaching and baptizing. That was a different approach. You see, he just preached the truth. He he, he really, it's interesting when you consider he didn't water down the message, he didn't placate his audience, he didn't resort to gimmicks or fads, he just preached the truth because that's what people need. John 8 and verse 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John preached a straightforward message, and the Bible tells us that he preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. He preached repentance in order to it he told people there must be a renovation of their hearts and a reformation in their lives and that they must forsake sins and turn to God and upon those terms and no other their their sins should be forgiven now baptism at that time was not new it wasn't unusual Again, we have to know who was talking and to whom was he speaking. John the Baptist was speaking. And he's speaking primarily to a Jewish audience who would have understood baptism, for they, before ceremonies in the temple, would go to the the various baptistries in front of the temple, many times called a mikveh or a mikveh, and they would be baptized for a ceremonial cleansing before they would enter into the presence of God for worship. They would have known what baptism, in that sense, was all about. They would go under the water. They would be immersed. Now, Gentiles would have known what baptism was all about. As well. For if a Gentile took note that Jehovah God, the God of, of followers of Judaism, was, was the true God, they would have been accurate in that. If they wanted to become followers of Judaism, they would have needed to have been baptized and they would have become a proselyte. So they would have known what baptism was all about as well. But John's baptism to me and I've studied this thing inside and out and backwards and forwards and, and I really believe that John's baptism was unique and that he was saying this. I'm not asking for a baptism for you to become a proselyte. I'm not asking for a baptism so you can get ceremonially cleansed up. Uh, he said this. I want you to know the king is coming. And I want you to know, you need to repent of your sin and you need to be baptized and confess your sin. And I believe that baptism really was a general indictment on the on the attitude, the spiritual climate of the day. And he said, you need to be baptized, a baptism of repentance. Now, this would not be new at that time, but I don't want us to think of this baptism and think of baptism in this day in which we are living in the New Testament, local, visible church. For John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was doing something different. He was preparing the way for the coming Messiah. Today, when we see a baptismal service, we we know that that follows faith in Christ. Baptism does not save us. If a person truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they never get baptized. They uh, certainly will be saved forever and ever. However, the Bible makes it clear that when someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says the, the first step in the life of a new believer is to follow the Lord and believer's baptism. The Bible says in Acts 2 and verse 41 then they that gladly received his word, that's saved, they become saved people, Christian people, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. The Bible says that typical, ordinary New Testament Christianity as seen in the book of Acts, as the church is getting started, as people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, their place, their faith, and Him and Him alone for salvation. The issue of their eternity is settled, and they are accepted by God forever in the family of God. But the Bible says an appropriate response to someone who receives God's gift of eternal life is to say, you know something, I don't mind at all giving a testimony uh, through through a, a visual picture that shows the death of Christ the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and no, we don't need to be baptized to go to heaven. But if I understand the Bible correctly, and don't let the Bible offend you, good night. If I understand the Bible correctly, the only alternative to baptism for a believer is sin. Because the Great Commission, go tell people how to get saved, get them baptized. The New Testament, people got saved and got baptized. Now listen, maybe you're here today and you're saved and you haven't been baptized. I want you to know this is great news because God says, I want you to be able to give a witness. He said, don't be ashamed of me. I'm not going to be ashamed of you. And, And it's not good for us to hide our candle under the proverbial bush. It's good to go ahead and let that news spread. And so John the Baptist's life and ministry were prophesied. His preaching was the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. If you're still alive and with me today, say amen. A little wonky, did I tell you it might get that way? We've got to understand this stuff, all right? It's okay if we study the Bible at church, isn't it? Okay, that's, thank you for that. That means a lot. All right, as we move on in our study, we've got to see the pattern of John, the pattern. Verse 6 tells us John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. Let me tell you something about John. He was a peculiar guy perhaps uh, weird, we may say, all right? The Bible lets us know that John the Baptist was part of a religious group known as the Nazarites. And being a Nazarite man, he lived his life by a very strict standard. In Luke 1 and verse 15, the Bible says, he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. So John the Baptist was a rabbi or a teacher, but he had a special calling on his life. He was a Nazarite. Being a Nazarite, one author even said uh, this, that he had to prevent even the accidental removal of hair from his head. (laughs) For that reason, this kind of guy, a Nazarite, it was against the law for him to let a comb touch his head. And so he couldn't cut his hair and he couldn't comb his hair. Now, that would lead to a peculiar-looking preacher, okay? I had one author that I read. I couldn't confirm this by any other, so I'll give you that caveat, who said that Nazarites quite often would have their hair braided in seven braids, and seven stood for something, I can't remember, but they'd have a separate hood to carry the seven braids in. John the Baptist was a peculiar-looking man. Now, he would have been more peculiar to us because we've never seen a Nazarite than he was at that time, but even at the time, I want you to get the picture, he was a guy who was kind of at a step with the social norms of the day. He, he was peculiar. We know that his his clothing was unusual. He wore camel's hair with a leather girdle. And his diet was unusual. He ate locusts with honey. His approach in preaching was unusual. His preaching resembled that of Elijah, who who preceded him by about 800 years, and Elijah was known as a fiery preacher, and John the Baptist was as well. If he was a televangelist, he would get poor ratings. I doubt many would want to come listen to him today, because he just would thunderously preach the truth, and, and he was a man mightily used of God. Now, that was God's will for his life. I I really don't find a principle in this text that tells us we need to go live in the wilderness and we need to uh, uh, wear peculiar clothing and have a peculiar diet. But I do find a principle in this text that tells me that those that make the greatest impact for eternity are quite often those who have the world make the least impact on their lives. John the Baptist was a man that just said, you know something, ultimately I want to please God. He was more interested in God's approval than the world's approval I remember when I was six to about ten my family lived in Korea and when we moved back from Korea I had to attend a new school and I was very very nervous about that and it's funny how I remember some moments in time in your life more than others but I just I remember being terrified at that thought and uh, as we were unpacking in the house I came across uh, an old briefcase that my dad had I remember it was a brown briefcase and it was beat absolutely to death he'd hauled that thing all around the world and and uh, and I got it in my mind you know if I carry this briefcase to my new school, people will absolutely be forced to conclude that I'm awesome. <laughs> and I got this plan together and got my pencils, my paper, and all my stuff, you know, and I, I uh, put my stuff in my dad's briefcase and I took my briefcase to school in third grade. And as it turns out, if you take a briefcase to third grade, you're a nerd, okay? Okay. <laughs> And I suppose for all to conclude, yes, he's not, he's not awesome. He's, in fact, a nerd, and I'm sure I, I helped to reinforce that at times uh, along the way. But, you know, my attempt at coolness went down in flames. I, I just thought, oh, if I can just do this, these people would like me. But when I did what I thought looked good, they, they thought, nope, that doesn't look good. Not cool. Not cool at all. And, and, and I wonder sometimes what our life looks like from heaven's perspective. As we do so much of the stuff we do to make sure that that these people around us think we're cool and the neighbors think we're cool and the coworkers think we're cool and we do so much stuff so others around us will think we're cool and we clamor and clamor to make sure when people look at us we got the right car and the right this and the right that. And, And I wonder from heaven how our life must look at times. We try to fit in with a world that the Bible tells us is a world that's out of step. It's just a world that doesn't doesn't make sense altogether. John the Baptist, listen, he could have cared less what the world thought about his clothing and his diet and his preaching style, but he cared a great deal about what God thought. He cared a great deal about pleasing God with his life. You know what I've noticed many times, and I deal with this in my own heart? Many times people of faith almost seemed afraid at times for the news to get out that they're people of faith. Sometimes as Christians, I've noticed that we, we want to run from any stigma that may actually reveal that we believe in Jesus Christ and he is our king and we're living our lives for his glory and his glory alone. And I think it's a sad thing when we have a king like Jesus and, and somewhere in our heart we think, you know, I'm just not sure if I want to get the news out. You kind of get the idea as you read scripture that a person living a Christian life should be just a little different, should be unique in a sense in relationship to those that don't know Jesus. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a peculiar people. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Bible says one of the ways that God shows his praises, one of the ways God shows the light of his truth, is when we live as a peculiar people that is distinct or different from the confusion and the chaos of this world. As people of faith follow God, the Lord is then able to use that life as a witness, as a testimony for him. Let me ask you this, can the world see Jesus in you? Can the world see Jesus in you? Paul in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, he says, look, th- this matter of living the Christian life, that, that, you're, not, you're not really killing the big one. That's just reasonable. It, it just makes sense. If you believe that God is God and he saved you from your sin, then, man, you ought to just give your life to him. It's reasonable service. And then he says this, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. John the Baptist didn't have much in this world's goods. You know, he lived on the outskirts of town, he didn't have much stuff, but he had the power of God on his life. And he was able to pillow his head at night knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am doing that thing that God made me to do. My purpose is being fulfilled. We see the pattern of John. But we'll see finally today the preference of John. John the Baptist's life was a life that was highly commended by Jesus Christ. Jesus would later say of John in Luke 7 and verse 28, I say unto you, among those that are born of women. How many of you have been born of a woman? All right, it's Mother's Day next week. Don't forget, all right? Jesus said, of those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise from Jesus Christ. Of all the prophets, he said, there's not any greater than John the Baptist. But his greatness was ultimately seen in the fact that he magnified Jesus. You can say, well, what great thing did John do? And the Bible would say he just lifted up Jesus Christ in his life. He gave his life helping other people know, hey, the king is coming. You need to get ready. You need to be prepared. He's coming. The king is coming. Get ready. In John 3 and verse 30, John expresses his heart this way. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he said that Jesus must increase. John said, but I must decrease. I need to make more room in my life for Christ. He preferred Christ. He had the right heart. As we consider these verses, we find a man who is esteemed highly, yet this esteemed man preferred Jesus above all others. That means this. He put Jesus first in his life. He exalted the person and the work of Jesus. Here in Mark 1. Verses 7 and 8, the Bible says this, And preach, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. In John's gospel, it is said this way in John 1 and verse 27, He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. John the Baptist was saying that Jesus is so wonderful. John said, man, I'm not even good enough to tie this guy's shoes. Jesus is so wonderful. He's preferred before me, above me. Think of that. John would say, you know, I'm baptizing with water. He's going to come and baptize with the Holy Spirit. John's message was one of of preparation so people could be ready to meet the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He preferred Jesus. Let, Let me tell you how to help any relationship in your life. Preferring. Preferring. You see, John made much of his life for the Lord because he preferred the Lord. And as we prefer others, whether it's a marriage or it's children or it's friendships or it's professional relationships, when we have a heart that says, I want to prefer a difference is made, the Bible in Romans 12 and verse 10 tells us this, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. When we prefer others, it means we put them above ourselves. If I prefer my wife, that means when I know that she has a need, I want to meet that need. In fact, when I know she has a want, I want to meet that want. When you really love somebody, if it's with your children, you you have times where you'll go out of your way to help them and bless them and encourage them because you love them so much. And when you have a life that prefers God, you'll say, God, I'm going to go out of my way, so to speak, to make sure that I'm serving you doing what I need to do for you. When John said that he preferred Jesus, he was saying that that he was the focal point in his life. You see, as we have that heart, we'll be fulfilling our purpose in life, just as John the Baptist did his. When we honor the Lord, we esteem him as the preeminent one in our lives. I just love the thought about John the Baptist Jesus said, you're not going to find a better prophet than him, no way. You can look all day, all night, six days a week, twice on Sunday, you're not going to find a better prophet than John the Baptist. And if someone were standing around and well, what would you do, John the Baptist? He didn't do a lot of the miracles the Old Testament prophets did. He didn't call down fire from heaven. He didn't do a lot of those kinds of things. So we also learn a lot about Jesus, the things that he thinks are of such great importance. John the Baptist would say, I don't know, I I just tried to do my best with my life to help people know that the Messiah was coming. I just tried to do my best. He would say, you know, I know the world thought I was out of step. I needed to take some fashion lessons and I ate weird stuff. but, But really, John the Baptist, I believe, would say, I just tried to give my life to let other people know that the king, the Messiah, was on his way. He prepared the way for people to personally meet Jesus Christ. Now, John said the Messiah is coming, and he did. He was born, he lived a perfect life. He was crucified on the cross of Calvary, he rose again. He ascended back to the right hand of the throne of God. So unlike John the Baptist, we can't say the Messiah is coming like he did, but friends, I'm here today to tell you, He is coming again. And He's not coming as a little lamb. He's coming as the lion, the Bible says, of Judah. And we would do well to say, you know, there's nothing of great importance in my life than making sure that I share with people around me that He's coming. I need to make straight the paths, bring down the high spots and fill in the low spots to make sure people can see clearly the king is coming. Now, of a necessity, we've, we've considered some, some facts today. I don't really apologize for that. I just want to do my best to make sure you guys are with me in it all, you know. But if we can study a life like the life of John the Baptist and say, yep, we got some information today. Couldn't comb his hair. Man, that's a good thing I learned at church today. I mean, really, what difference does that make? The, the point is this. We don't just find information when we study John the Baptist, we find an example. We find someone say, listen, you're not going to do it just the way I did it, but you can do it the way God would have you to do it, using your life so that others come to know Christ. There's nothing greater in all the world than have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And for those that know Jesus Christ, there's no greater joy in all the world than sharing that with other people. Our Father, thank you for an opportunity to open your word and Study it together. We know your book is spiritually discerned. We all need your help so that we can learn it. And, and Lord, I do pray that you'll help us to, to grow from this time. We need you, Lord.